somewhere along the line I got the bubonic plague, so I'm not feeling the best. So if I pass out, I have a couple men that are going to help me out. Chris is going to prop me up, and Tim will be my voice. So uh, we'll maybe get three guys up here if I go. Anyway, glad to bring the word to you this morning, and um, I trust it will be a blessing uh, to the five of you who made it out. (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right. Well, you love it. I love it. What is it? Food. We love food. Amen? We all love food. Who doesn't love delicious, nutritious, and beautiful food? And we've all probably been at a wedding celebrations or receptions or dinner parties where the food was just out of this world. And, and I participated in, uh, Christina and I went to a wedding a few weeks ago, and man, the food, just tons of amazing food. And this was like beautiful food too. It was just a, a wonderful uh, celebration. Food can be great to just look at. Uh, if you think of fruit, fruit can be so colorful, and so if you put a bunch of fruits together, it, uh, it just looks great. But the only way that you can benefit from the antioxidants and the vitamins and the minerals is to eat. Uh, so to get the nutrients in you is the key. Uh, grilled salmon laid over a, a bed of vegetables is beautiful to look at, but to benefit from the omega-3, you have to eat it. So yes, there is benefit in being around food, but there's more benefit when you eat food. Well, the disciples were privileged men. They hung around God's son. They watched him amaze. They had front row seats in the stadium of Christ's awesomeness. Yet there were limitations. Jesus couldn't physically be everywhere at once. Uh, he, he could leave his disciples, and when he would, then they weren't with him, obviously. Jesus wasn't always there to help. The physical presence of Jesus was awesome for the disciples to experience, but Jesus said there was actually something better, and that's what I hope you see this morning. Jesus believed that it benefited his disciples for him to leave. Now, how could that be? Well, one way is he needed to go and accomplish redemption on the cross. He left them to save them. But in our verses today, it was better because if Jesus didn't leave, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. And it would be much better for them to have the Holy Spirit in them than Jesus beside them. So for life on earth... Isn't this what Jesus is getting at? The Holy Spirit living in us is more helpful than Jesus standing beside us. The Holy Spirit living in us is more helpful than Jesus standing beside us. Someday the Spirit will be in us and Jesus will be beside us. But in this life, the Spirit of Jesus in us is better than the physical presence of Jesus with us. Having the Holy Spirit in you is awesome. Awesome, you gotta have him in you. He's ours, an awesome gift that we possess. He is God in us now and forever. And that's amazing. About three months ago, I preached a, uh, 
a three-part series on the Holy Spirit. And I focused on three things. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And how will the Holy Spirit make a difference in your life? Now, if you missed those sermons, I want to just encourage you to go to our website, JerusalemChurch.net, and to listen to those sermons. It's on the sermon page, and you can get it there. I think it will help you better understand John 16. So in this upper room discourse, Jesus talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. So let's try to understand what Jesus meant. The physical presence of Jesus was very helpful, very helpful. They were together in the upper room. Jesus served them, taught them, encouraged them, and he also corrected their divergent thinking. He said some hard things, but they were really good things, and they were helpful things. And Jesus made it clear that that the world would hate and persecute them because of him. He would be the cause. At this point, Jesus had been with them for around three years. And during that time, Jesus was a very controversial cultural figure. Even though the disciples were with him, hanging out with him, ministering with him, Jesus bore the brunt of the controversy. Jesus was the cause of the problem. As as long as Jesus was around, he was the primary target. Now look at verse 4b. Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He was with them, keeping them and guarding them, um, taking the brunt of the hatred from the world. That's why he waited to tell them these things. He, he helped them out while he was with them. Jesus uh, prayed to the Father in John 17, 12, which confirmed this. He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So while Jesus was physically with his disciples, he kept and guarded them. As long as, uh, as he was with them, it was a great blessing for him to be with them. Now, I was a very sensitive child, um, I didn't want to leave home to go to kindergarten. I, I, was, I was scared to leave home. And so I cried before the bus came on, on my first day of, of public school. But I went, I got on the bu- bus, and I survived. I made it to the end of the day. School let out around 3 o'clock, and I got on the bus. And here's where I must say I had some childhood trauma. Um, I learned some things, actually, about myself as I was thinking this through. But anyway, the bus driver didn't know where I lived. Aren't bus drivers supposed to know where the kids on the bus live? I was the last kid on the bus, and the driver would ask me, where do you live, kid? Well, I'm, I'm broken at this point. I'm terrified. I'm crying with tears. I didn't know. He obviously didn't know. How am I going to get home? All right? So I was supposed to get home at 3.30, but didn't. Uh, Meanwhile, my mom was panicking and thinking, where is my child? I'm the baby by nine years. In fact, on on my mom's side of the family, I'm the baby of everybody. I mean, I'm precious, okay? So they're, so they're wondering what in the world is going on. And uh, she called the school and they told her we, we put him on the bus. So it's a little before 4 o'clock, and I'm not home yet. My mom was sitting by the road, 
in a lawn chair, looking up and down the road, waiting for the bus to come. And uh, she was worried sick. At 4 o'clock, my mom flagged the bus down as it approached our house, and it stopped, and I got off the bus, cue the dramatic music, and uh, for a couple reasons, uh, a few days later, I started going not to the public school, but to Hinkletown Mennonite School, and lovingly, when I made that switch, my parents drove me to school for a while. Um, And my mom said that uh, after the school day was over, I would sit by the window in my kindergarten class looking out the window, wondering if my mom would come to pick me up. So I was scarred, all right? This rattled me. Eventually, I rode the bus again, but I had to switch buses then at Garden Spot High School. How do you think that made me feel? To have to ride into the big scary high school and to change buses. I was terrified. Now, how did I get through that? Here's how I got through that. My big brother, Chris. My big brother, Chris, got me through that. He rode with me in the morning, and he made sure that I got on the right bus at the high school. And uh, just having Chris there with me, my older brother, who could take on the world, uh, made me feel better. It made all the difference. To this day, whenever I get on buses, I break out in cold sweats, and I have to call my brother, Chris, just to hear his voice. Right? I'm, I'm kidding. I, that's not true. I, I think I have worked through it for the most part. But isn't it helpful to have someone with you when you're going through something hard? To have someone by your side. Now, that's really good, but there's a problem with that. What happens when no one's there with you? Sometimes we're alone. Jesus was with his disciples in the flesh. Yes, that was very helpful. That was very precious. But he was leaving them to return to his father. He wouldn't always be with them in the flesh. Then what? And this created sorrow in the disciples. And I think it created some fear inside of them too. Who would keep and guard them? Who would watch over them? Who would be with them? And I want you to hold on to that thought. Jesus continued in verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now that's tricky to understand. Jesus was returning to his Father, which was awesome. In fact, that was cause for celebration. They should have been rejoicing at this dinner here, at this Passover supper. All right, this is cause for rejoicing. But Jesus noticed that the disciples weren't rejoicing, and they weren't asking him questions about this. Now, if you're really sharp and you're paying attention to the sermon series, you'll probably remember that back in John 13, 36, Peter did ask Jesus where he was going. And similarly, Thomas in John 14, 5. So how can Jesus say here, none of you asks me, where are you going? And I think this is what Jesus meant. Earlier in the conversation, the disciples didn't know where he was headed, but wanted to know because they assumed that they were going with him. Hey, we're just going to stay with you, man. We're going wherever you go. So tell us a little bit about, they were thinking about themselves. In fact, they were focused on their loss of Jesus rather than on Jesus and the gain of going back to his father. So they knew they weren't going with him, and they knew things were going to get bad on earth. After all, after all Jesus had just described the hatred and persecution of the world. It was going to get bad on earth. 
Somehow their sorrow shut down their curiosity. They didn't ask him any questions about where he was going. Why not be happy with Jesus and ask him about his his coming trip? Hey, tell us about the Father. Tell us what this is going to be like. Tell, Tell us about that. Give us some information. And Jesus could sense what was going on inside of them, and he wanted to help them understand. Listen to how he helped them through this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Big words. Huge words. It is better that Jesus left us. It is better for us that Jesus left us. Now this seems counterintuitive when you think about who Jesus is. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our treasure. We want Him with us. How could it be better? But think it through. It is true. It is best that Jesus left. It'd be incredible to have Jesus with us in the flesh. The the disciples had God's Son right there with them, at their side, teaching them and leading them. It's amazing. But think of it this way. Jesus could be one place at a time. One place at a time. His flesh bound him to a particular location. He couldn't be with all of his followers at, the, at one time. When he was in the upper room here, he was not also with Mary Magdalene and the other followers. Jesus told them clearly, it is to your advantage. It's going to benefit you. It's better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The Holy Spirit is the key in understanding what Jesus meant here. Jesus needed to leave, and he needed to leave through the cross to accomplish redemption uh, for his people, and he needed to do that in order for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus meant that the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit was better than Jesus sticking around and staying with them. Just think about that. The indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit better than Jesus sticking around and being there in the flesh. Now, we might think in our lives today, man, if Jesus was only here, if he was only here, he could help out with this. He could help me out. Well, we shouldn't think that way. Now, we should want to be with Jesus, absolutely, but we need to understand that it's best case scenario to have the Holy Spirit of Jesus leading and guiding us from within. God in us. The primary thing motivating you to live for God is not outside of you. It's not a set of laws or a set of rules. It's not Jesus looking over your shoulder. What motivates you to live for God is in holiness. What keeps you and guards you is the Spirit in you. He convicts you of sin from within He helps you obey from within. He fuels your desire for God from within. What ultimately keeps people in line, what makes people truly moral in the biblical sense is not rules, is not law, is not religion. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working inside of them, leading them into holiness. God has given us an incredible gift in the Holy Spirit. He would not have the Holy Spirit in us 
or we would not have the Holy Spirit in us if Jesus had not been crucified and gone away. He endured the cross. He rose again, returned to the Father, and sent His Spirit to us. Now, if you think about this, this can be very hard for us because we are very physical people. We like to see and touch and taste and smell and hear. Life for us is very, very physical, right? What we experience. And we're tempted to trust the physical because we can see it and to distrust the spiritual because we can't. But spiritual realities are just as real. Just as real. In this life, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in us is more advantageous for us than Jesus standing beside us. We are very privileged people to live after the resurrection of Jesus Christ because now we have God in us. You know, people along, God's people along the ages, all throughout the ages, longed for this reality to have the Holy Spirit. That manifested power to live in them. We are no longer under law, my friends. We are under grace. And Christ does in us what the law could never do from outside of us. Back in John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus said this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. To be with you forever. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, Jesus does something better than stand beside you. He puts his spirit in you forever. Forever and ever. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper because, get this, this might blow your mind, he helps us. Isn't that amazing? He actually helps us. Every Christian simultaneously from around the world throughout history. Holy Spirit. Once Pentecost, he sent every Holy Spirit-filled Christian benefits simultaneously. Every Christian has full access. You need to hear that. Full access to the Spirit's power and help simultaneously. Hear this loud and clear. God is not too busy for you. There's, there, there's plenty on his plate, but he can handle it. And he is there for you, in you. If you're a Christian, he's in you, helping you all the time. Believe it and receive his help. Draw from the Holy Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. It's more advantageous to you to have the Spirit in you than Jesus standing beside you. The helper would come and bear witness to Christ and he would help the disciples bear witness to Christ. The disciples went and they proclaimed the gospel to the nations and the helper worked through their witness to save people from the world. Listen to verses 8 and 11. Amazing stretch of verses, though difficult to understand. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin? Because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness? Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, this is what God does through the witness of believers. 
This is God's sovereign and amazing grace. Verses 8 through 11 is what the Spirit does to save people. These, these four verses are difficult to interpret. I had a hard time interpreting these verses. Uh, commentators and scholars are they're all over the board in a sense. All right, The Greek is difficult to understand. So I'm going to give it my best shot here to try to be simple to the point and helpful of what Jesus meant here. The Holy Spirit came to do three things, in essence, from this text. Number one, convict the world concerning sin. Number two, convict the world concerning righteousness. And number three, convict the world concerning judgment. Can you see that in the text? Sin, righteousness, judgment. Jesus needed to leave to send the Spirit to come and do these three things. Now, the word convict means to show someone that they've done wrong. All right, they've done something wrong. It's, it's really to expose sin, to lay it open, and to declare them guilty. But not only that, it's calling them to repentance, it's calling them to change. So conviction is a good thing. It's exposing bad in order to bring about restoration. So first, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. The Holy Spirit will expose the world's sin. Namely, the sin of unbelief. He'll declare them guilty before God and will show them their desperate need for a Savior. He'll help them, in essence, feel bad about their sin. He'll convict the world, revealing it to them. They feel bad about that. Jesus said, because they do not believe in me. The world doesn't believe Jesus. You can see it. They don't like Jesus. They hate him. They fight him. I don't know if you're keeping up in the news, but I just heard a little quick flash that there's uh, someone in Kentucky that went to prison because they would not issue a, a homosexual marriage license because of their belief in the Bible and Jesus Christ, and, and uh, I think they're going, uh, going to jail. The world doesn't like Jesus and doesn't like what Jesus has to say, um, so they don't believe him. And if you think about it, unbelief is the worst sin. Because all other sins are heading right out of unbelief. I don't believe what God says, and therefore I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. Unbelief is a worse sin, worse than any other. It's the root of every other sin. The world doesn't believe God, but the Holy Spirit will cause some people in the world to see their unbelief and come to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin and graciously saves them out of it. He leads people to seek refuge in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has the power, get this, the power to override unbelief and to give people the gift of saving faith. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. Isn't it true that everyone in the world thinks they are morally good or acceptable, you hear this over and over again. They believe that their own righteousness is sufficient, and they believe a lie. Jesus Christ alone is righteous. So the Holy Spirit exposes the world's self-righteousness by revealing the perfect righteousness of Christ. Jesus is the perfect standard of righteousness, but he said that he was going to the Father 
And the disciples wouldn't see him anymore. The perfect standard of righteousness was leaving. He was going, was going back to the Father, and he wouldn't be there anymore. So in the absence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit would show people that their righteousness falls drastically short of the righteousness of Christ. That they're not like Jesus. Therein, unveiling their great need for Christ's righteousness, which is received only by faith in Christ. That's how you get his righteousness. You receive it by faith. Lastly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. The ruler of this world is Satan. Satan. And he is judged by God. So is the world because the world follows Satan. He is the ruler of the world, Jesus said. Satan and the world have judged Christ incorrectly. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of their false judgment of Christ and the true and just and fierce judgment of God. The world will receive the just judgment of God. He convicts them concerning judgment. All of this conviction comes through the gospel witness of the disciples. As they proclaim the gospel, the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. As the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are proclaimed, the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to convict the world concerning these three things. We can't change the world. And I want to say that again just so it sinks in. We cannot change the world. But the Holy Spirit can through us. Through us. Through our gospel witness, our dec- uh, uh, a declaration of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson said this, This convicting work of the paraclete, or the Holy Spirit, is therefore gracious. It is designed to bring men and women of the world to recognize their need and so turn to Jesus and thus stop being the world. Jesus uh, uh, sends his Holy Spirit to convict the world and to pull people out of the world so that they're not the world anymore. That's grace. That's sovereign grace. God graciously helps people stop being the world. We could call it sovereign grace. Verses 8 and 11 is evidence that God does that work. So let's bring this to the practical. Do you know someone in your life that refuses to change? They just won't change. Same old, same old, heading away from Jesus Christ, not a care in the world. Won't change. They are hard, they are fixed, they are rooted, and they are determined to live for themselves. Do you know anyone like that? They won't change. Won't even talk about it. Won't even consider it. Hard-nosed. Well, these four verses give hope. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and He can change people. The Holy Spirit can do for them what you can't. He can show them how they've been so wrong, so sinful, so hurtful, and He can convict them. He can convict them. So pray for the Holy Spirit to accomplish verses 8 through 11 in that person that you know. That won't change. We have to rely on the sovereignty of God here to change. We can't do it. One more quote to help you understand these four tough verses. Hendrickson. Love this guy. 
He's since uh, passed on, but he explained it like this. The Holy Spirit will not only lay bare the world's sin, but in the case of some, will awaken a consciousness of guilt, which leads to true repentance. There will be genuine sorrow and a fleeing to the Savior for refuge and pardon. There will be many instances of true conversion. Though the world in general will continue to persecute the church, there will be millions of people who in the course of history are awakened to the consciousness of their guilt. As a result of the operation of God's sovereign grace, men from every clime and nation will accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Pray for people who won't change. Pray for them. Pray that the Holy Spirit would lay bare their sin, would expose it to them, would awaken a consciousness of their guilt, would lead them to true repentance so they flee to Jesus Christ for refuge and pardon. The Spirit does these things. Yearn for Him to do it in your life and yearn for Him to do it in the lives of those that you love. In these last four verses, I want to show you that uh, what the Holy Spirit did for the 11 disciples and in a similar way what the Holy Spirit uh, can do for you. And all of these things can help you see that the Holy Spirit living in us is more helpful than Jesus standing right beside us. Please realize that the Holy Spirit does awesome things. The Holy Spirit does awesome things. In verse 12, Jesus told the 11 I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus would, would reveal much more to them in time after his cross and resurrection through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but it would have to wait at this point. They weren't ready. Here are some awesome things from verses 13 through 15 that the Holy Spirit would do for them uh, once he came to live in them and then how it applies to us as well. Number one, he would come to them as the spirit of truth. He would come to them as the spirit of truth. The truth would graciously come to the disciples. That's grace. Truth would come to the disciples. They would receive truth as grace. God sends the spirit of truth to you as well. If you know and love the truth, it is only by God's grace that you know and love it. Rejoice because you have received the truth. Do you love Jesus Christ this morning? Do you know about his life, death, burial, and resurrection? If you do, rejoice that that truth has come to you. Number two, he would guide them into all the truth. He would guide them into all the truth. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So taken together, these two verses tell us how the New Testament came together. Every book of the New Testament was either written by a disciple or directly authorized and superintended by a disciple. The Holy Spirit guided the disciples into all the truth. He made absolutely sure that they got it right, that they got the person and work of Jesus right. The Bible is a dead piece of literature if the Holy Spirit is not in it. 
But because the Holy Spirit is in it, because the Holy Spirit did author it, it is alive, it is relevant, it is accurate, it is helpful, it meets you right where you are. It's so helpful. The Holy Spirit would help the disciples comprehend the meaning and implications of the cross and resurrection. They, of course, would experience it firsthand. They would watch and go through these events with Jesus in a sense, but would also need help discerning it, making sense of it. And so when you read the, the New Testament, it's, a, it's an exposition of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What we read in the Bible is a thorough exposition of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son, and it's essential for every Christian. It's essential for your life. The Holy Spirit doesn't do the exact same thing for us. He he does not come to us in order to reveal all truth to us so that we could write Scripture. That's That's not what we do. But the Holy Spirit does guide us into the truth. He teaches us through Scripture. He's our greatest teacher. He's our greatest pastor. You see, he should be moving through my words now of, of just preaching the text to move in your heart and to teach you from this. That's why sitting under the preaching of the Word is so important. That's why we devote such time to the preaching of God's Word here because there's power in it. The Holy Spirit moves through it. The Spirit and the Word work in concert to guide us In the truth. Don't you want to know what's true? Don't you want a solid rock to stand on in a culture that makes no sense whatsoever? We need to be educated by the Holy Spirit. He is the key to you rightly discerning truth and reality. Do you want to live for a lie? Or do you want to live for the truth? Then you got to have the Holy Spirit to live for that truth. You can't truly understand God or life or anything apart from the Holy Spirit. Number three, he would speak to them the words of God. The Holy Spirit spoke to them with the authority of God. Not his own authority, God's authority. He spoke what he heard from the Father and what he heard from the Son. The Spirit unified the disciples in the God-breathed truth. Now we also can hear the Spirit speak through the authoritative words of Scripture. And what a blessing those words are to us, that God speaks to us. He still speaks through His Word. Number four, He would speak to them the future. This is awesome. Not only does the Holy Spirit know the future, but He would tell the disciples the future. He would tell them the things to come. He would unravel for them the mysteries of God's plan and God's purpose, and they would write it down. The book of Revelation, of the things that are coming, is one example of this. The Holy Spirit would reveal to John, the apostle John, the disciple John, the things that were coming, the glories of eternal life. So let me let you in on a little secret. You can know the future. You know what's coming. You know the end of the story. This is not a surprise. It's written in God's Word. Now, Revelation can be a very tricky book to understand. But the point is, Jesus is king and he's coming back. Amen? So you know the future. You know what's coming. Study your New Testament closely. Study your Bible closely. The Holy Spirit will guide you as you study the Bible and he will help you understand many things and many things to come.
You need the Holy Spirit and the Bible to help you discern what's happening in the world and what's happening, what will happen in the future. Number five, he would glorify Jesus Christ by declaring to them more of Christ. He would glorify Jesus Christ by declaring to them more of Christ. The Holy Spirit came to glorify Jesus Christ. That's what he's all about. And that's uh, good. He is consumed with drawing people's attention to Jesus Christ. So some of the things that you see in churches that draw attention to the Holy Spirit and the gifts may not be drawing attention to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit works to draw attention to Jesus Christ. He came to the disciples in order to help them see more of the beauty and the majesty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, God's Son, so that they could more fully glorify Jesus Christ from their lives. Jesus said, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's an awesome statement. Think of all that Jesus reveals and gives. The Spirit sees all that Jesus is, all that he has accomplished and would accomplish, all that he truly is and would declare that to the disciples so that they would get it, so that they would see it, so that they would know it. Hendrickson explained it like this. He will take that which is Christ's, the very substance of his teaching regarding the purpose of redemption, manner of salvation, etc., and will enlarge it. Whatever Christ has done, is doing, will do, is the theme of the Holy Spirit's teaching. Carson wrote that it does not simply mean that the paraclete or Holy Spirit passes on what Jesus declares, but that all the revelation bound up in Jesus' person and mission are pressed home on the disciples. It's the fullness of Jesus Christ that was declared to them. The full revelation of God through Jesus Christ was driven home in the disciples by the Holy Spirit. He revealed to them a much fuller picture of the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, and the disciples then captured that in the New Testament for us to study and understand. Let me simplify these these five points. The Holy Spirit came to the disciples to explain and apply Jesus Christ to them to explain and apply Jesus Christ to them. That was God's grace. God, the Holy Spirit, must come to you to explain to you the person of Jesus Christ and to apply all of his benefits to you or else you don't get it. This will all be stupid. The gospel will be stupid. The Bible will be stupid. It won't make any sense. It will seem archaic and arcane and just... But when the Holy Spirit comes and awakens your heart to see the beauty and supremacy and truth of Jesus Christ and to apply all of his benefits on you, you get it. Your life is forever changed. That's God's grace. This is why the Holy Spirit living in us is more helpful than Jesus standing beside us. God helps us see and savor his son, Jesus, by living in us and leading us to find our greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ, above all things, to the glory and worship of God. God did this for the disciples, and God is still doing this for his people today. 
Now, let me ask you a question I want you to really think about. It's simple. How is the helper helping you enjoy and glorify Christ? How is the helper helping you enjoy and glorify Jesus Christ? No one will ever enjoy and glorify Jesus Christ apart from the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. You have no punch. You have no joy of the Spirit. So I just want to say this as I close, that if you have questions about the Holy Spirit, this might be new to some of you. You might have you know, a lot of questions about it. I want you just to ask me. I would be very glad to do some hard work with you to help you better understand the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is so crucial for Christians. You've got to have the Spirit, and you've got to know what He can do for you, because if we're just flat, spiritless people, we don't have Christ. Our church won't grow. Our church won't be healthy. But when we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and living in us, leading us, guiding us, protecting us, uh, giving blessing to us, oh, my friends, There is so much for you to experience in that indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to know that and to experience it. So if you have questions, would you please talk to me after the service, email me during the week, call me on my cell phone, the number's printed in the bulletin, get a hold of me. I'd like to help you study the Bible so you can understand the Spirit more and understand what He does for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit that we are not deficient because you somehow left and now we're alone. No, we're not alone. You said you would always be with us even to the end of the age and you are with us, Jesus Christ, by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that incredible gift. And I pray that as we worship to close out the service here through singing and rejoicing in all that you have done, that we would see the supremacy of Jesus even more and your spirit would work in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.